Open your Bibles, if you would, Mark chapter 13. I mean, it's just amazing, you know, the, the chance that we have as a fellowship here, you know, in Alaska, to, through John and Kay and so many others, touch places around the world like this. And so we should be wise to take advantage of it. Right. Um, we're going to set the remainder of chapter 12 aside for a future date. Reasons will become clear uh, in time. But for now, we're going to step into chapter 13, Mark's Gospel, as we continue our study. Um, this is a very distinct chapter. It's, it's different than the rest of Mark's Gospel. Uh, in fact, there's not a whole lot of the New Testament that's quite like this. Uh, Matthew has a section that's like this. Uh, there's part of Thessalonian letters and, of course, the book of Revelation. Um, it's a shift in, in the nature of Jesus' teaching as it moves from his immediate presence to the prospect of his return. What will happen when he returns? And the word that's used to describe this kind of writing or this kind of literature is it's apocalyptic literature. And that is really a word that's got a bad rap. Um, when somebody says to you that something is apocalyptic, I mean, what comes to mind, you know? Smoke and fire and destruction and just really, really bad, bad stuff. And, and that apocalyptic literature may describe that kind of stuff, but that's not what the word means. Um, the, the word apocalypsis is in Scripture. It's the first word in the book of Revelation, and it means revelation. It just means to reveal something. So that's what we're talking about here. And it's really, really important to keep that in mind because whenever we're reading this kind of stuff, whether it's in Matthew or whether it's in the book of Revelation, we can kind of get caught up in the details, you know. Like, you know, what exactly is on fire and, you know, why is it burning kind of questions rather than ask the question, what is God trying to reveal to us in this passage? So that's the mindset that we want to have as we look at this portion of Scripture this morning. What is God trying to say to us? What does he want us to learn? So Mark chapter 13, and we'll begin with the first verse. Just read the first two to start. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for um, the opportunity we have to gather together, worship, hear the good report, pray for things that need to be prayed for, Father, and look to your word. So we ask you, Lord, that you just give us ears to hear this morning. We might hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus has finished his dialogue with the religious experts. That was that last part of chapter 11, chapter 12. That public discourse is over, and now his attention will move fully to the disciples. And they're walking out of the temple as it starts. And as they're walking out here in verse 1, one of his disciples makes the comment, look at these magnificent stones. Look at this incredible building. It's really kind of a comment that could very easily be made in and of itself, didn't necessarily mean anything, but it does give us an idea just how overwhelming, even those that lived in its environments could be easily overwhelmed by the magnificence of Herod's temple. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that it starts with a tent in the wilderness, and then uh, Solomon comes along and he, and he builds a temple, and then uh, that temple is destroyed. 
by the Babylonians. And then uh, under Ezra, the temple is rebuilt. And Ezra gives us some real insight in chapter 3 when he talks about the rebuilding of the temple. How when the foundation was laid, there were people that were rejoicing, but there were also those who were crying because that second temple was so much smaller. It, la it lacked the splendor and the glory of the first temple that had been destroyed. In time, Herod would come along and do his level best to take that restored temple, which again was smaller than the first, and make it the most magnificent structure on the planet, and he was pretty successful at it. Herod doubled the size of the foundation. If you go to Jerusalem today, or if you see a picture of Jerusalem, that large flat slab on which uh, the temple, or rather the mosque sits, on the Temple Mount, that was all Herod's work. He literally doubled the size of the foundation, making it several football fields in area. He did it by building up these massive exterior walls and then backfilling with gravel, creating this huge platform. He expanded the temple itself. The interior structure re remained the same, but he expanded the building around it. He made it taller. He made the wide porches around it. And then he built columns and, and what they call a stoa around it, especially along the southern side. And then on the northern side of this massive platform, he built the fortress Antonia. So it was a huge structure. Nothing on earth compared to it. There, is no, there was no religious you know, edifice, nothing instructed in all of the empire that even began to compare to it. So both in its, its construction, how they did it, and if you go there, you stare at it, and you just marvel. How do they move those big stones? Uh, the design, everything about it was overwhelming in its magnificence. And so the disciple says, Lord, look at these magnificent stones. And I'm sure they were shocked by the words that came out of Jesus' mouth. Not one stone shall be left upon another that will not be torn down. If they hadn't gotten the point yet, that Jesus was not going to be the Messiah they thought he was going to be, that would make it perfectly clear. We've talked about this before up to this point. They were looking for a Messiah that was a great military leader that would you know, run the Romans off. They were looking for a Messiah that was a great religious leader, a great spiritual leader that would straighten out the spiritual climate of Israel and do away with all the sin and the ungodliness that had made its way into the people's thinking that would do away with the corruption of the government. In other words, the Messiah would be like, if I can use the expression, like Moses on steroids. Just overwhelmingly a man of God, but just a man. And everything this man would do would be within the system of, of worship that the temple represented. The temple was absolutely necessary to their anticipation or their thinking about what the Messiah would be. And so when Jesus said, all of this is going away, I mean, it, it had to rock their world. The, the nearest I can come to it is if you were to imagine, or I would imagine all the great buildings and all the things that we identify as essential to all our culture. You know, if the White House and the Capitol Building and the Washington Memorial and the Lincoln Memorial and the Liberty Bell and the Statue of Liberty, and all that was just gone away. And the great documents that are the foundation of our country, I can remember as a young person going into the National Archives and looking at the Declaration of Independence and the, the hair just stand. That was all gone. All of that was gone. It would be difficult to retain our identity as a people. It would be difficult to truly know who we were if all that was suddenly gone. We'd, I think we'd lose it. We'd lose it pretty quickly. 
So the idea of the temple was absolutely essential to their worship, to their understanding, to everything that they were. And the Messiah that they had envisioned would operate through that system. Well, Jesus just told them it's not going to be that way at all. It's going to be completely different. Verses 3 and 4, they made their way across the valley to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking directly back at the Temple Mount. Peter, James, and John approach him, and they ask, when is all this going to happen? What's it going to look like? They want to know what to anticipate prior to Jesus' returns. And what follows from verses 3 and 4 all the way to verse 37, and I'll, I'll let you guys read this for yourselves, but what follows in all those verses is a description of what's going to happen from that point in time until Jesus returns. They're starting to catch up to the, on the idea that Jesus is going away. They're still not exactly sure how that's going to work. They don't fully understand all that he said about his pending death. But Jesus is going away, but they know he's going to come back. And in that block of scripture from verses 3 and 4 all the way to 37, Jesus explains what it's going to be like. Now, for our perspective, that's 2,000 years. Verses 3 and 4 all the way to verse 37, that's 2,000 years. And a lot of what Jesus says in that block of the text is understandable. I mean, he talks about earthquakes. Nothing new to us, right? We got that down. We can understand earthquakes. Disasters of all types. Wars and rumors of war. Unfortunately, we understand that, too. Famines. You know, some of these disasters are man-made. Some of these are natural. Some of them are kind of a combination of the above. Man and nature working to create catastrophe. But all of this in a progressively worsening way. Things getting worse and worse and worse. Until, and here's where it gets pretty wild, verses 24 and 25. The actual cosmic order as we know it ceases to function. All of the natural laws we associate with the way things are, they just cease to function. It reads this way, verses 24 and 25. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. You know, we tend to think of natural law as permanent. You know, like gravity will always be there. All the different physical laws that govern the universe, they'll always be there. No, they're part of the created order. And just as God created, so he can change. Just as he placed those natural laws in place, they will be removed. And everything we understand about how, how our world, and I mean that in the largest sense, functions, will be gone. It will change. He can do that because it's his. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, that's the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, everything in, our, in the cosmic order, everything that works, works because Jesus makes it work. We need to get away from the idea that Jesus operated, that God operated in creation in a system that was pre-existent. That's not correct. The system in which creation took place was the first step of creation. Nothing exists except that he created it, including the very laws and principles by which the universe is governed. All of that will change as we approach Jesus' return. With regard to the national order, he, he created it, he sustains it, and he can 
pull the plug on it. Verse 26 speaks of Jesus returning, replacing all things with a new order. Peter goes into great deal in his epistle on that. Now again, most of this we can imagine and to a certain degree understand. But there are some things in this section which we can't, they're just not part of our experience. Verse 14 speaks of an abomination that causes desolation. I don't think we have anything in our experience that approaches that. Verse 19 talks about a tribulation such as the world has never seen. Nothing in our experience parallels that. And then in verse 27 it says, He will send forth his angels and gather together the elect from the four corners. Again, nothing in our experience touches that. So what I'd like to do with these next three weeks is touch on each of these three things. These three things that are outside of our experience that we have no way of understanding. But as we do that, as we're going through these three things over the next three weeks... I want all of this to be done with the purpose of our seeing three significant realities. Three things we have to be conscious of. The first is, Jesus is coming back. That's the foundation. Jesus is returning for his church. We have to remember that. The second thing is that things will get bad before they get better. They'll get worse before they get better. And thirdly, we always, always, always need to be ready. The one thing that Jesus repeats throughout this section is be on guard. Be on watch. Be ready. All of this is a call for us to be ready. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the abomination that causes desolation. What is it? What did it mean then? What does it mean now? What does it mean to us? Well, first of all, what does it mean? Verse 14, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Again, a lot is written and said about this phrase, all part of this whole idea of, of the apocalypse, the revelation. The abomination that causes death is simply something that is abominable, something that is horrific, something that is profoundly ungodly, that leaves someplace desolate. In that, it's not that complicated. Something overwhelmingly wicked that leaves someplace uninhabitable, useless, not of any purpose or function. Now, to the ear of Jesus' listeners, that would have been perfectly clear. They would have understood that. Their minds would have immediately gone back to the book of Daniel. Daniel, who, of course, is writing in Babylon, in Persia, in exile, in the 7th century, was there because of the people's ungodliness. Because of their wickedness, God had cast them into exile and allowed the temple and the city to be destroyed. Now, when we think about Daniel, we tend to think about Daniel in terms of his visions, his dreams, some of the crazy stuff he wrote about. The core of Daniel's work is not dreams and visions, though. The core of Daniel's writing is repentance. Daniel acknowledging that the circumstances they found themselves in, exiled to a foreign land, were because of their own sin. Just one short example from Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 to 7. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him, keep his commandments. We have sinned committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. 
Moreover, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. What's Daniel saying? He's saying we are in a rotten situation right now. Our temple is destroyed. The walls of the city are down. Jerusalem's not even inhabitable. We're spread across the empire. And everywhere we find ourselves, we're in a place of open shame. Why? Not because God's unfaithful, but because we were. No question in Daniel's mind who's responsible for the situation they find themselves in. Chapter 20 of Daniel, that same chapter, there's a vision of the restoration of the coming Messiah. And then it's in chapter 11, verse 31, that Daniel talks about someone setting up the abomination that causes desolation. Again, every Jew would have understood that phrase. Because it was part of their, you know, their, his, their, common their common history, their common understanding. They understood it to be a reference to things that happened under the Seleucid rule of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. The way the storyline goes, if you know your Old Testament history, is that the people of Israel were allowed to return. Under Ezra, again, they rebuilt the temple. Worship flourished. The people returned to Israel. But in time they again became ungodly. And the Seleucids, who were descendants of one of Alexander's generals, raised an empire in Syria. And soon they came and they ruled over Israel. Now the first part of the Seleucid Empire's treatment of Israel was pretty good. As long as the people in Israel, you know, behaved themselves, they left them alone. But when Antiochus IV arose, that all changed. He was an incredibly wicked man. And in the passage of time, he would go to Jerusalem invade the city, go into the temple, and commit an abominable act. He would sacrifice a pig on the altar of the temple. In so doing, he rent, that was an abominable act. Pig was an unclean animal. Should have never even been brought anywhere near the temple. And in sacrificing it, he rendered the temple unusable. Jewish law forbade the temple from being used and in so doing forbade any sacrifices from being made until the temple had been ritually cleansed. And so it wasn't until the Maccabean revolt that drove the Seleucids out that they were able to cleanse the temple. And the cleansing of the temple was a miraculous story. Again, the point to be made here, this is all in the minds of the Jewish people of the first century. They know about this. This is constantly in their thinking. Because the Jewish holiday that celebrated the driving out of the Seleucids, the cleansing of the temple, and the restoration of worship in the temple was celebrated every year and is still celebrated every year in Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah is all about. It's about the cleansing and the restoration of temple worship. So this is part of the, you know, the furniture of the brain. They're thinking about these things. And when Jesus says, be careful, the abomination that causes desolation will come, it told them something just like that is going to happen again. What we saw in the past, we'll see in the future. It's part of what would happen before his return. When you see it happen, verses 14 to 16, Jesus said it was time to get out. When you see this kind of abominable thing happening again. And of course it did. 
less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, Titus, continuing the siege of Jerusalem that his father started, would level the city, break down the walls, come into the temple, and commit abominable acts that were at least the equal of Antiochus. In fact, he even went farther. He even went so far as to pollute the scrolls, to pour a broth made of boiled pig flesh over all the ancient scrolls, rendering the scrolls unusable, bringing to an end temple worship. By 74 AD, with the fall of Masada, Jerusalem had become completely unoccupiable. From AD 70 to AD 35, Jerusalem was vacant. It was nothing more than a Roman outpost with a few soldiers. In 135 AD, Jerusalem was rebuilt as a Roman city. From AD 135 to 164, it was, it was tossed back and forth between the Byzantines and the Romans. From 614 to 1250, back and forth between Christian armies and Muslim armies. And from 1250 until very recent times under Islamic control. So that last, 200, uh, that last 2,000 years is pretty well covered by the phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. Jerusalem itself rendered unusable to the people of Israel, only till recent years, 1948. So what did all this mean to Jesus' early followers when he said this? Well, again, the first thing it meant was you can just forget your expectations of what the Messiah is going to be. He's not going to be somebody that's going to come in, clear out the Romans, reestablish temple worship, and things will continue as they always had. No, that is not what it's about. It meant that the church would start in Jerusalem and expand but by the end of the first century, Jerusalem, again, is not occupied anymore. The center of the church, the center of his kingdom, the center of his kingdom would be cities and places like Antioch of Syria, Alexandria of Egypt, Rome, Nicaea. These became the centers of Christian study, of missionary activity, of Christian growth. The church would grow from those places, not Jerusalem. Other places became centers. Relationship between the Apostle Paul and the city of Antioch is one good example of the book of Acts. Other centers would take the centerpiece. When Jerusalem fell, the resident Christians who were there were among the very few that survived. Over a million residents were slaughtered when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, but the Christians that were there survived because they knew to leave. Jesus had said, even if you're up on the rooftop, don't go down and get your cloak, just go. Even if you're in the field working, don't go back, just go, just leave. Why? Because of the destruction that would come. And it's a matter of historical record. The Christians that were living in Jerusalem when the Romans came were the ones that survived. And they survived because they took Jesus at his word. This was not taken to be some cryptic message. This was not something that was hidden in, in dark, complicated spiritual language. It was understood to be a simple, straightforward warning. When you see these things happening, Jesus said, leave, and they did. And because they did, they survived. It was simple, straightforward truth. They understood that taking Jesus at his word was an absolute essential step for the church. The fall of the city was an enormous tragedy. Again, over a million deaths, but it showed that Jesus was to be taken at his word. So to us, that's the simple truth as well, to take our Lord at his word. 
Take Jesus at his word. It's folly to do otherwise. Jesus wraps up this section down in verses um, 34 and 35. Or I'm sorry, verse 33 to 37. It starts this way. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 33. Oh, verse 28. I'm very sorry. Verse 28. Jesus said this. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on alert. You do not know when the appointed time is. And then he says this in verse 34. It's like a man away on his journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cockcrow, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say, I say to you all, be on the alert. I didn't stop the count, but how many times in that passage does he say be on the alert? How many times does he say be on guard and to watch? That's the message. I mean, there's all kinds of questions that whether I read this or whether I read Revelation or whether I read the short section in Thessalonians, I've got all kinds of questions about what it means in the details. But what I know is this. I'm instructed to be on the alert. I'm instructed to keep watch. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to stand guard? To be on the alert. Well, it implies some things. The first thing it implies when it says stand guard, be on the alert, keep watch, is that there's something to be watched. There's something of value. Well, what is it of value that I am challenged as a servant of Christ? What is it of value or worth that I'm told to watch over? I value my family greatly. I treasure my children greatly. But when I, look at the concept, when I look at the expanse of eternity, the thing that I am most compelled to watch over is that which I have been called to do by Christ. My calling is what I will stand watch over, what I will stand guard over, because that is what I will answer for. Yes, I have a responsibility to my family. I have a responsibility to y'all. But what I will give answer to is my calling. I will give answer to him to what I have done. How many times in the New Testament did Jesus tell parables that told us we would give an answer for what we had done with what we had been given? And I noticed that in this parable, Jesus is careful to say that the master of the house going away assigns to each one, their task. I can't think of anything anywhere in the New Testament that tells me anybody is called and saved just to be called and saved. Just to hang around as a spectator. I would challenge each one, ask yourself, what are the gifts that God has given you and how can you apply those gifts in the furtherance of his kingdom? That is probably where your calling lies. All of us are gifted. All of us are called. And we should so live our lives as to watch over and guard those callings. I don't think, I don't think anything causes me 
concern. When I look at my own life and my faults and my failings and my weaknesses, sins that I get, you know, that I find myself in, I don't think anything, I know he'll forgive me for those things. I know I'll be forgiven all of my sins. I have no doubt about that at all. What gives me concern is that somehow my failing in an area of sin might invalidate my calling. That I would not be able to continue in my calling because of what I, an area I failed in. That's what I have to keep watch over. In terms of my priorities in life, do I let a priority, do I let a value, do I let something I want, even if it's well and good, do I let something come in my life that jeopardizes what he's called me to be and to do? I've got a very clear warning here to, to be watchful, to guard over that, not let it happen. Every one of us, I absolutely believe, has been called to do something, and it is folly to be careless in life in such a way that we cannot fulfill that calling. We're told the evil one would come to kill, steal, and destroy. What would he steal? Well, he can steal our joy. He can steal our happiness. He can steal our peace. He can steal our health, our family. But he would also steal our calling, that task we've been given to do. I know... Well, one would be too many, but I know far too many Christians who come to the end of their life and say, you know, I sense God called me to do something, and I, I just never did it. Really? All the other things you did? You couldn't do that thing he called you to do? The fact that we're told to keep watch, to stand guard, to be alert, means there's something, to be, there's something active to be done. Please don't wait until Jesus knocks down your door. Right? Seek him. Ask him. Lord, what would you have me do? Begin by, again, by looking at the giftings you already have. Make it an active pursuit, not a passive one, to find out what he's called you to do within his kingdom. You know, going back to Daniel, one of the things that Daniel confessed and repented of was the people had not listened to the warnings of the prophet. Well, here is the prophet warning us. To be on alert, to be careful, to be conscious of the tasks we have been assigned. You know, I, I, I know I've shared a lot um, in my own um, Christian walk and growth. I hope I don't repeat myself. I'm 65, though, so if it happens, deal with it. Sorry. One of the proudest moments in my whole Christian experience was when I had been transferred from, from Nia Bay, Washington, which was a search and rescue station, um, to Homer, Alaska on a buoy tender, which, as far as the excitement level, was like going from a 10 to a 1, right? You know, search and rescue, you're out there doing all that great glorious stuff, slopping around in the ocean, having a grand time, to a buoy tender. You're putting buoys in the water. As long as you're careful, it shouldn't be exciting at all. If it is exciting, somebody did something wrong. But there was this occasion, this one occasion, when on the buoy tender, we got a search and rescue call. Like, you know, wow, we got a search and rescue call. We're the Coast Guard again. Um, none of us knew it, though. Somebody had fallen out of a boat into Catchmack Bay. Now, the aside to all this is if you fall out of a boat into the water in Alaska and you're counting on a buoy tender to save you, eh, you're dead. But still, you got to try, right? We're still a Coast Guard. We had to respond. But none of us knew what had happened. All we knew was that the captain, starting at the back of the ship, moving forward, 
was yelling orders at the top of his voice. Now, if you've been in the military, you know you don't normally get orders from the top. They come down through the chain of command. So the minute we heard the captain yelling orders, we knew something weird was up. And he made his way from the back of the ship. I happened to be on the mess deck drinking coffee. That's what a first-class petty officer is supposed to do. Um, he was at the back of the ship coming forward, yelling orders all the way, and bodies are starting to fly. And we don't know what's going on. We just know something big time is going up. Is going on. It happened to be, again, a search and rescue call. And as the captain moved through the mess deck, he got right next to where I was sitting. And again, he's yelling orders all the way out, had this incredible voice. One of those guys, he didn't have to yell to scare you. And he just, now he's yelling. So he's moving across the ship, and he gets right next to me, and he lowered his tone. He said, Moropolis, roll the mains. I mean, start the engines. Moropolis, roll the mains. And then with the next step, his voice went back up. I knew in that moment, he knew I was not somebody he had to yell at. I knew that he knew all he had to do was tell me to do it. And it would happen. And it did. Got that boat off the pier in 18 minutes. Coast Guard record. It wasn't the record that made me feel good. It was knowing that my captain trusted me. He knew when he told me to do it, it would happen. I really, really hope, I really, really hope my Savior has that same confidence in me. Because if he doesn't, I need to do something about it. And that's true of all of us. The abomination that causes desolation was something evil that brought people's response to God to an end. I never want to contribute to that. I want to be a part of bringing people's response to the Savior to be a yes and to facilitate that process of them moving forward. And I don't think there's a Christian on the face of the earth that isn't called to find their place in that process somewhere. I look, at this, I look at the giftings. I just look across the room, the enormous giftings that are here. God help us find ways to convert, our, to take our giftings and transform them into an active pursuit of his kingdom, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. Father, I thank you so much for your word, Lord. And Father, it's, it's really easy, I think, sometimes, especially when we're reading this kind of stuff, you know, about famines and wars and stars falling out of the sky. We kind of just like, oh, Lord, I don't understand this, and kind of just move on from it. But I really believe, Father, you're trying to show us something here, that all of these things we take so much for granted, this magnificent world, Lord, the beauty of this world, Father, we can get comfortable in it. And assume things are just always going to be the way they are. Well, we know they're not, Lord. We know that everything we see around us is temporary, Father. It's been a passing moment. Father, our calling is to act. Your instruction to us is to act in this moment in such a way that eternity is changed in the lives of people. Our, our prayer this morning is that we just be found responsive to that. We would just say yes when your voice calls us, when you instruct us. Help us to be that kind of people, Lord.
Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.